You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 211 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me, both of them from the South, uh, first, David Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Grubbs? Morning. Also joining us from uh, Emanuel College, where he's an associate professor of English, Nathan Gilmore. How's it been, man? <laughs> what it is. What it is. <laughs> <laughs> We're punchy today, <laughs> as, you can, as you can tell. Um, our episode's about Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. Bradbury's, a, I think, a pretty, pretty close to a household name, especially if you have any kind of toe in uh, science fiction. But uh, he's probably most famous for this book of connected short stories or mm-hmm. his uh, dystopian novel Fahrenheit 451, which a lot of people mm-hmm. read in high school, or his horror novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which R.L. Stein once called the scariest book he'd ever read. Hmm. So are, you guys, are you guys far off too. Do you, you, are you guys young enough to have experiences with R.L. Stein? R.L. Stein is very important to me. I, I always <laughs> thought R.L. Stein was a pen name for a collective of writers just because so many books came out. It may have been, it may, but he's a real person. It, it, but it, okay. it, may, it may be that he had a factory. Okay, he, yeah. He put enough. out a new Goosebumps book every month. Yeah, I, I just assume that he was like Franklin W. Dixon. Yeah, or Caroline Keener. I think he's more like Ann M. Martin. Ann M. Martin's and, a real person, but she doesn't write all the Babysitter's Club and books. Nom de genre. <laughs> anyway, Ray Bradbury writes a bunch of books and writes them all himself and publishes them under his name. So you have probably heard of him. You have probably experienced something he's done. I, I believe he wrote a number of Twilight Zone episodes as well. Hmm. I know he wrote. Okay. Um, I know he wrote. Uh, I sing the body electric. Interesting. Okay. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about the Martian Chronicles. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to talk about the entirety. It's about 300 pages long. So I tried to pick some stories that are interesting, representative, entertaining, stuff that I like anyway. I want to begin with the first story in the collection, which is really just a two-page sketch called Rocket Summer. There is a band called that. I can only assume they got their name from the Bradbury short story. Nathan, Mm -hmm. what does that strange phrase mean, Rocket Summer? And how does Bradbury use this story to introduce the Martian Chronicles as a collection? Well, Rocket Summer uh, either doesn't take place in Mars or it takes place on a part of Mars that reminds people of Ohio. Uh, I, it does not take place on Mars. I looked at Mars. it a few times. I couldn't decide. It's Ohio. Okay. All right. All right. Because, uh, you know, I guess you could say of Mars it was like Ohio winter, but I guess it it does say it was Ohio winter. Uh, but in this, you know, very brief, I mean, really just, you know, four and a half paragraph long sketch, like Michael said, uh, it is winter in Ohio uh, until they activate one of these rockets that presumably one day is going to propel one of these spaceships to Mars. Uh, and in the birth of that rocket, in its wake, if you will, uh, the climate conditions actually shift in Ohio so that for a moment uh, it becomes summer. And it comes to be called Rocket Summer precisely because it's when they fire this thing up that the climate conditions changes. Wow. The climate conditions change. There we go. And I think it's a good setup for this collection because in the stories that we read for today, uh, one of the persistent questions has to do with the ways that rational beings, uh, whether they be human beings, whether they be humanoid Martians, whether they be you know these strange meta-Martians that we're going to meet later in the episode. Uh, When we do what we do, 
the world around us doesn't stay the way that it was, but it changes. And the constant refrain in this collection is, you know, to what extent and in what ways is the change good? And to what extent and in what ways is the change harmful? Mm-hmm. In this case, it seems benign because you really do only have four paragraphs. You know, people are kind of amused that for a moment they can take off their winter coats and, you know, the the housewives shed their bare disguises is my favorite sentence in the story. Um, but as we progress, as we keep moving along, we're going to discover that this this question, you know, how should we change our environment? Because by definition, we're going to is never a, a morally or an ethically neutral question. Uh, David, I, I feel like I just talked, you know, 10 minutes about a five minute story. Is there anything else to be said here? I think it gets at another, uh, recurrent, uh, recurrent consideration in the, uh, in these stories, not, not in all of them, the way the, the way that we, the way that we, uh, change our environment um, that that's absolutely pervasive, mm-hmm. but, uh, another one is this, uh, pervasive element of de- of domesticity of of the kind of hu- sort of mid 20th century american middle class normal right um that the reality of the rocket is breaking up into um and in some ways changing in some ways not um it's uh yeah, it's it, it's it's not in every story, but it is one that comes up again and again and again and again. Um, the way that uh, the way that the humans in this story seem to seem to carry their normal world or with them inside of their heads, and then it spills out onto the world around them, or doesn't, um, with conflict. Mm-hmm. I, I would add to what you said, Nathan, that um, it, it's kind of a novelty that for a couple of hours the Ohio winter becomes summer. Mm-hmm. What the what the story doesn't ask explicitly, though, is what happens when this rocket goes off in July? Nah, do, do you okay. know what I mean? Like, like so, so it, it stops being a parlor <laughs> trick at some point and starts being something genuinely dis- destructive. And yeah. but by the time you get to the end of the Martian Chronicles, and, and we'll, we'll read some stories closer to the end, it becomes clear that one mm-hmm. of the reasons we're going to Mars at all is because we've destroyed this planet. Right. But the right. very act of going participates in that destruction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. One of the cool things about the Martian Chronicles, I think is that it's a science fiction collection. I, I, I think if you're going to put it in one genre, that's the place to put it. But like the very best science fiction, Bradbury is playing with other genres within that larger genre. And that mm. brings us to the next story. Uh, Illa, uh, I, I guess that's how it's pronounced. It's Y L L A. I'm going to pronounce it Illa. That's that's as good as I've got. Um, which is really kind of a 1940s, 1950s domestic tragedy. It, it uh, Douglas Silk could have made this into a movie. <laughs> David, what's Bradbury up to in Illa, and how does transplanting bad marriages from Earth to Mars change their meaning? Huh. Well, first it is that 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 is uh, what's going on here. Um, the centerpiece is the the tension between Mister and Mrs. K, and Mrs. K is the the uh, the Illa of the story. Um, they are both Martians. They have fair brownish skin of the true Martian with yellow coin eyes and soft musical voices. And even though uh, they they live in a house. And she cleans the house and while he, you know, while he reads in his comfy chair, um, the house they live in is crystal pillars on the edge of an empty sea. And she, she cleans the house with handfuls of magnetic dust. And what he reads are books with raised hieroglyphics that sing as he, as he strokes them with his fingers. It's a synesthetic mm-hmm. world to be sure. Yeah, yeah, the 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 sensory flood um that's that's just an ordinary part of this Martian existence is something that sets them apart. Um and also uh, Bradbury has has kind of systematically um 
he he simultaneously preserved these images of normalcy. The man in his easy chair reading while his wife, you know, sort of putters about with things domestic. Um, I mean, you you expect him to have like the 1950s guy pipe in his mouth with a cardigan, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, except it's a cardigan made of living flame and the pipe is sentient, (laughs) (laughs) right? So he's got all of these images of of kind of, you know, fifties era advertisement domesticity, but then he's kind of systematically replacing each of the familiar objects with something that's unfamiliar. Um, and even, even to the point where, you know, they're going to take their firebirds up to the, you know, up to the blue mountains, um, you know, which I don't know, maybe it would be like the Poconos or something, um, for an and- entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Which, which, because Michael sent us these stories immediately made me think of, uh, back to the future too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have yeah. you settled your mind on tonight's entertainment? <laughs> Shark still looks fake. <laughs> yep. So, um, it's 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 uh, simultaneously building a bridge to the human reader, making you imagine Martians as as like us, uh, as related to us in a way that that creates um, empathy and identification, but then continually confronting you with the ways in which their existence is, um, you know, systematically alien. Right. Mm-hmm. So he he he's. With one hand he gives, with the other hand he takes away. But ultimately, I think what what he achieves is something um, pretty convincing. There, there are a few places where it feels a little bit artificial to me because of that 1950s domestic tragedy structure, like the bones that the the genre bones that you talk about, Michael, are 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 so apparent here to me. To me, it feels kind of alien. Um, no pun intended. Haha. <laughs> But uh, maybe intended. But uh, still, still, it works. Um, the difference, though, is she's having dreams, and in those dreams, she imagines a handsome man that she grows more and more emotionally connected to, and her husband is uneasy and eventually jealous of her attachment to this this handsome dream man. Um, and all of this makes sense in, in a particular kind of way in a human context, except that her dreams take the form of prophecies, and it's pretty clear that he takes them more seriously than just as dreams. Um, mm-hmm. He dismisses them as dreams, but at the same time seems to take them as something more serious, and they are because we're not dealing with mundane human reality. Um, it does seem as if the handsome man in her dreams is a human astronaut that's confirmed by a later story um, who is in some way communicating with her mind to mind as he approaches Mars. And uh, so, so that her dreams are actually prophecy. And in the end, uh, he takes drastic steps in order to prevent those dreams from coming true. Um, but in the meantime, you've got the whole... Um, uh, arrangement of a hunting trip so that it, it makes sense that he's leaving the house with weapons while at the same time she has to stay home so that she can receive a visitor because hospitality is this woman's role. But, oh, wait, sorry, that was tomorrow. My bad. So it's all of these kind of um, recognizable domestic machinations in order to um, pull off his, 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 his plan. But... Uh, I, I I don't know. It, it, there there seems to be more continuity with with um the the bad marriage story here than than not. H- how different how different do you see this uh, as Nathan? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see you know the sort of I mean for la- for lack of a better reference, you know uh, the Henrik Ibsen kind of plot here, right? You know the mm-hmm. condescending right. husband, the uh, you know, the sort of the wife, you know, in the in the dire situation and all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the manipulations are certainly there. Uh, the violence and the threat of violence is certainly there. Um, and I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, no actual infidelity occurs and yet the murder as a revenge for the infidelity does or presumably does. 
uh, like David said, I mean, we get reference to the dead astronaut later on, so it's a fairly easy connection to make. Uh, so, you know, the gadgets, I mean, really kind of made me, you know, think of this as, you know, sort of a very dark uh, Flintstones or Jetsons episode uh, more than yeah. anything else. Well, and it's a combination uh, no. of the two of them, right? It's it's very advanced technology that is at the same time very, very organic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Precisely. It's it's simultaneously robots and living creatures. My favorite um, thing is that the house is a sunflower. The house rotates during the day to continue to face the sun. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's interesting here is that it is played as just utterly mundane here, whereas later on, for reasons we're going to get into, it is elevated as this uh, grand monument of possibilities for civilization. And, you know, the play between those two, I mean, is really just masterful. Mm-hmm. I would also point out the 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 organicness or organicity of the uh, mm-hmm. of the technology is a contrast to the the mechanical quality to this marriage and and, and in fact at, at one point Ill who is Ill's husband um kisses her mechanically it says and, and oh, it's okay. it's yeah. the one yeah. mechanical thing in the story you know everything else everything else is this Flintstones. Um, Flintstones technology, where it's all connected to the world, and of course the guy in, in the moon be still as bright. We'll talk about in a minute. Makes a big deal about that, but like their marriage is the mechanism uh, mm-hmm. here. And and it the the other time you see something that looks inhuman or in Martian is when uh, Ill goes and hu- goes hunting because he puts on this scary silver mask that doesn't mm-hmm. move. So yeah. so so the marriage in particular is connected with these things that are unnatural and, uh, and inhuman. Mm-hmm. And then well, and one... Jimmy Hendrix starts in with, Hey, ill, where are you going with that gun in your hand? <laughs> I, I, we should, we should also point out before somebody writes in and tells us that we didn't mention it. Uh, her name is a variation of his suggesting, of course, that she has no existence outside of him. And the story backs that mm-hmm. up. And he, he enforces mm-hmm. that violently. Right. Yeah. There's the, also that little bit in the story where she feels jealous of the book in his hand because he mm-hmm. because he's touching it and not her. What a mm-hmm. bummer! Yeah, <laughs> I'm like oh. Um. So yeah. Bradbury anticipates iPhones. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Put the phone down. Have dinner. Like a normal person. <laughs> Well, Earthlings are the unseen heroes or victims in Illa, but they are definitely the villains in uh, And the Moon Be Still Was Bright, which to me is a, is a pretty obvious commentary on Western colonialism. Am I way off about that, Nathan? It, it is interesting because only Bender in this story, who is one of the you know crew of the ship. Um, Spender. Bender is, is it a, Spender? Bender is a robot from Futurama. <laughs> oh, son of a gun. All right, all right. I, I read I these stories very fast, listeners, so my apologies, my apologies. Spender, pardon me, uh, is, yeah, I mean, and, and again, I realize that Bradbury is the root of these stories, not the product of them, but because I encountered them first, I mean, he is the Dunbar from Dances with Wolves who goes native and becomes Martian, and, uh, you know, that whole genre, you know, whether you're talking about uh, Dances with Wolves or The Last Samurai or Avatar, although I haven't seen that one. Uh, Much closer to Avatar. What now? Much closer to Avatar. Okay, alright. Just because Alien, anyway. Uh, yeah, but the Japanese and the Sioux are kind of alien in those other two movies. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> Spender, uh, among this crew, is really the only one who, on his own, develops a sense that this planet that they are encountering as an uninhabited space is in fact somebody's home. And even if they can't find living Martians here, that they still owe something to the people who are there. So they land, uh, they make reference a number of times to the fact that they might be the third or fourth crew that's landed on Mars and no one has survived. And they start to discover these abandoned cities, these abandoned canals, these abandoned places. And Spender, uh, basically wanders off one day after he realizes that, you know, his fellow crewmen only want to do some drinking and some hollering and some partying. 
Uh, and when he comes back, he has taken so much to this lost Martian world that he's discovered uh, that he actually becomes a murderer. He starts to kill his own former crewmates. Uh, it The story culminates with you know a sort of battle between Spender, who has gone native, even though there are no natives with whom he can go native, uh, versus the captain and the rest of the crew, who are, you know, as far as the captain is concerned, by necessity, but by a tragic necessity, having to take him down. So, you know, this is a story that plays on character contrasts. Uh, Spender and the captain have a certain depth to their capacity to see an abandoned place and appreciate that there was once life there. And in fact, at one point, Spender, if, if I remember the language right, fills the city with inhabitants mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the others, again, you know, uh, they say, there's nothing here, let's have a drink. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's it's not a uh, subtle commentary by any means. No, at one uh, point but... the guy gets drunk and pukes all over their temple floor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, David, I mean, what other elements jumped out at you when you were reading this? The the Western colonialism uh, side of it, I think, is pretty clearly there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 overtly there. Uh, but he also uh, it, it's also the the estrangement. Um, Spender is interested in the estrangement that science makes between uh, between the, the between the human person and the world that surrounds them. And one of the one of the th- things that he sees in this Martian culture is a better way of of relating to the world than the kind of uh, instrumental objective mechanism mm-hmm. uh, of of science. Right, which is another staple of the going native storyline. Exactly, exactly. So mm-hmm. on one on one side, you're like, yeah, you're right. Science does that. But um, Westerners are constantly looking at non-Western cultures as the places where the the human world relation is done better than their place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to what extent is that a, a, a kind of appropriate Western self-critique or just a kind of Western probe that's exoticizing the other in a different kind of way? The right. noble savage. Right. Mm-hmm. Except that the Martians aren't really savages. Their their technology is in a lot of ways more advanced than the Earthlings' technology. Mm-hmm. It's just that in the process of that advancement, they manage to not have it go against religion in particular, is what Spender talks about. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That, that somehow their connection with the divine maintained itself throughout the technological progress there was no there was no process of disenchantment um mm-hmm. to to use charles taylor's word um that, that mm-hmm. we that we went through they they managed to be both enchanted and technologically advanced which i think i've never seen avatar but it certainly does set it apart from something like the last samurai or mm-hmm. um or uh dances with wolves which are very much back to simplicity back to nature this is simplicity right, right. of a sort, but it's a very complex simplicity. Right. And I mean, that that's a, a plot line that Star Trek, especially the next generation, picked up on a number of times. So mm-hmm. again, you can see these ripples of influence from this collection. Yeah. I, I think this story is about, among other things, competing infections. Mm-hmm. So when Spender is talking to the captain, he says... Um, He's he's justifying himself for killing all the men. And he says, what could I do, argue with you? It's simply me against the whole crooked, grinding, greedy setup on Earth. They'll be flopping their filthy atom bombs up here, fighting for bases to have wars. Isn't it enough they've ruined one planet without ruining another? Do they have to foul someone else's manger? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, like, he, he is concerned that... I was going to call it the American attitude, but really it's the entire Earth attitude of... of conquest and consumerism is this infection that can only be stopped by killing off the host 
which is all mm-hmm. human beings, including himself, he figures out. At the same time, uh, the Martian attitude is also infectious. And after, after the captain does finally kill Spender, because he has to, he mm-hmm. has caught what Spender has. He says, I've got to live up to this. I can't let him down now. If he figured there was something in me that was like himself and couldn't kill me because of it, then what a mm-hmm. job I have ahead of me. That's it. Yes, that's it. I'm Spender all over again, but I think before I shoot, I don't shoot at all. I don't kill. I do things with people. And he couldn't kill me because I was himself under a slightly different condition. So he is. he has caught whatever the infection is that made Spender... Um, so obsessed with with Mars as it used to be, and in fact, the story ends with with another one of these boorish soldiers shooting out uh, windows in in one of the dead cities, and it says mm-hmm. the captain caught Parkhill and knocked his teeth out, which is a great way to end the story. But it it does leave open the captain's future. Is he right? Is he going to be Spender without going as far as Spender did? And if he doesn't go as far as Spender did. Can he actually stop the Earth infection from infecting Mars? Hmm. Right. There's a, there's a, I, I would call it a sense of fate, but because it's moving in both directions at once, I'm not sure. It's like competing fates almost. Mm-hmm. It's a cool story. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, and the the language that you're using, um, especially the this kind of infectious, um, and then the the spender's language of, of fouling it. I, I kept thinking of, of, uh, Herbert's, um, grandeur of God. Um, Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Not Hopkins. Um, uh, got my H names mixed. Yeah. Gerard Manley <laughs> Hopkins, um, with the, the, the earth that, uh, bears man's stain and wears his smell. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're coming to, stain and s- smell another place. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't think it's accidental that the the Martians die from an infection. And, and in, in some ways, that's a callback to uh, War of the Worlds. Right. Um, but also, they're, they're dying of something Earth people didn't try to give them, and something Earth people thought of as being very harmless. It's a, they died of chicken pox and Spender is outraged by this. He thinks it's so demeaning that they died of a children's disease. But the, like mm-hmm. that's the point. These things that these things that we carry without even realizing we're carrying them, what are we capable of destroying without meaning to destroy it? Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of non-bummer stories in the Martian Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe yeah. maybe there are and I just picked the ones that are that are bummers. Although, I, 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 yeah, I would regard that as a possibility. <laughs> well, the, the <laughs> next one we're going to talk about, the fire balloons, isn't that much of a bummer, I think. Um, theology comes up from time to time in the Martian Chronicles, but the fire balloons is is almost a theological treatise in, in some ways. Um, what sorts of conclusions does Bradbury come to, David, if he comes to any at all? <laughs> well, it, it begins with a... Uh, a missionary uh, expedition to Mars. The Episcopal Fathers are are coming to Mars, bringing bringing religion with them, um, and in particular, the Most Reverend Father Joseph Daniel Peregrine, um, Peregrine, uh, the 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 traveler, the pilgrim. Um, you know, so what he is is in his name. He is especially excited about coming to Mars because he is long speculated. Uh, apparently, about what difference uh, a different world might make to spiritual matters. Um, he, he, he's, he's sort of going on and on at the beginning of the story about whether or not sin will be different. Mm-hmm. Which initially um, uh, could come off as kind of goofy and vapid. But then what he delves into is the ways in which our sins are contingent on uh, corporeal realities and social realities. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what senses do you have? What pleasures do you have? In what ways can beings relate in, um, in the, uh, in the species, in the community that is yours so that um, he starts sounding less crazy and more insightful. Um, 
as 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 he goes. Um, which which means that as soon as he gets to Mars, the thing that he's most interested in is what if I could find other intelligent, ensouled beings, um, to to take uh, to take the faith to them. That that's what he's um, most interested in doing is is trying to bridge that gap with the with the categorically different creature. And yeah, they've got this, um, uh, apparently they've got this, uh, kind of mining town situation that looks very much like gold rush or old West, where it's a bunch of, bunch of guys have come to Mars as colonists and they're kind of, um, hard scrabble, you know, tough guys who've done what tough guys do in a gold rush, which is, you know, drink and fight and whore. And, the other fathers think, okay, this is clearly the place that needs missionaries <laughs> is over here. Um, but Father Peregrine is interested in finding a very different kind of creature, which he does in these things call um, that the, the the title calls them the fire balloons. But they're these 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 entities of floating blue light. Um, and he sees in the story, Father Peregrine sees in the stories told about them. Um, evidence that they are thinking creatures, that they are choosing creatures, um, that they are choosing to intervene to preserve the life of other creatures, which he sees as moral choice. And so having satisfied those criteria, um, they are rational. Um, they are volitional. They are moral. Therefore, um, he needs to go preach to them as Francis preached to the birds. Um, the, however, uh, he, he, he sees a need to adjust what he does. Um, he has, uh, one of the other priests make a glass ball with a blue light inside of it and says, okay, this will be the image of Christ. And here's where, um, the theological speculation kind of starts most. Um, the idea is that, uh, that Christ, the the manifestation of God among us, right? The manifestation of God with us, um, he sees would necessarily take a f- different form depending on which us God is with. So that the Christ of fire, blue fireball creatures would be a blue fireball creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, and you know, Logos became blue fireball and dwelt among us. And we beheld his his blue fire. <laughs> yeah. So that's you know that 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 is that is his speculation. Um, eventually, he does have this interaction with the blue fire creatures, which kind of has to be uh, has to be read. Um, they say we wish to tell you. Well, we are the old ones. We were old Martians. Um, the idea is that once they had been embodied creatures, but through this kind of development and progress, they have actually left behind bodily existence, and now they are almost pure intellect, manifesting only as these kind of balls of blue fire. Um, they no longer have bodily passions. They no longer die. They no longer have the sins that accompany bodily passion. Um, they say we have put away the sins of the body and live in God's grace. We covet no property because we have no property. We do not steal, kill, lust, or hate. We live in happiness. We cannot reproduce. We do not eat or drink or make war. All the sensualities and childishness and sins of the body were stripped away when our bodies were put aside. Um... So these blue fireball critters are basically saying we live in a kind of sinless mental perfection. And thanks for the church, but uh, we don't really need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they sort of drift off on their way. And Father Peregrine is left wishing that the conversation had gone on longer. And then his sidekick, Father Stone, has this speculation about there being a different truth on every planet that's part of the big truth. And um, it kind of steers off in the, everybody sing part of the elephant kind of direction. <laughs> do, do you get the sense that Bradbury approves of, of that speech? Because my 
My impression is he does. That's my impression too. Um, but this is this is one of the places where this story feels really, really strange given his depiction of the alien so far in the story. That mm-hmm. these disembodied uh and maybe he maybe Bradbury wants us to get this, but the ways in which these disembodied blue flame creatures talk about sin and goodness and grace and all the rest of it seems to be tapping so much into the kinds of categories that this priest already thinks in mm-hmm. that um and we've already seen Martians as telepaths. Martians as able to to bridge some kind of distance with alien minds and even to communicate with it. Like Illa, um, we didn't talk about this, but in the in in the Illa story, um, she actually starts um, singing uh, a Ben Johnson uh, song, right? You know, drink to me only with an eyes, um, and. She doesn't know what she's doing, but she's able to telepathically bridge that gap with the alien mind and empathize and even use their language. So to what extent has have, have we actually even communicated with the blue fire creatures? Hmm. Um, anyway, I, I ultimately end up um, very deeply skeptical of it because I'm not sure that just because um, another round sphere o rock happens to be a long way from our sphere o rock that that's going to completely change theological categories. Um, but that seems to be the conclusion that Bradbury wants us to reach. But I'm also curmudgeonly and, and super attached to Genesis. Right, <laughs> and I, I mean, I would I, I would point out that that Bradbury was religious um, for mm-hmm. apparently his whole life. But he described himself as a delicatessen religious person. So I, 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 he's he's often in in lists of famous Unitarian Universalists. Okay. So so that, the that, salad bar image. Right. That's why I'm that's why I'm inclined to see him as approving of Father Stone's speech there because mm-hmm. uh, that that is my impression of what Bradbury himself believed. Okay. It's kind of fog bomby in an even wider you know, definition of brotherhood and manhood. <laughs> mm. You, you, you seem to be dissenting Nathan. What, what, what think you? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, I, I think that, you know, first of all, you know, the fact that these higher beings are higher because they are disembodied is something at the very least that should give us pause, uh-huh. uh, that, you know, uh, there is there is a certain suspicion of the body going on in this story, uh, mm-hmm. and like you said, because it never really gets complicated at the end, like I was kind of hoping it would. You know that another character would come along and say, "Hey, isn't that odd?" You know, Father Peregrine, who has some you know Gnostic boogie woogie going on, found some Gnostic aliens, and he really digs them. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> but no one says that, right? Um, instead, you know, these, these creatures are the wise ones precisely because they don't have bodies. They don't marry, they don't, you know, desire anything material, so on and so forth. Um, I, I think that there is also something of Voltaire's El Dorado in this, uh, you know, the city that Candide and, oh, what's his, what's his manservant's name? A combo? I can't remember. I, th- I believe it's Kakambo. Kakambo, that's what it is. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> but at any rate, you know, I mean, this place where the people uh, don't desire the petty things that Europeans do, but they simply give praise always to God and live in gratitude, and they don't need priests or temples because they just know that God is always giving them good gifts. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, okay, you know. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, you know, if I could live as an ahistorical being, I'd probably be less of an a-hole too. But, um, <laughs> you know, that's that's not actually where we exist. So, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, we're having a little prince 2.0 here with me because I I see the talking <laughs> I, I I see the talking snake and I get suspicious. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was kind of expecting you to start making NT right noises. 
<laughs> Go uh, ahead. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, you already kind of did it. That, like that, uh, that, that deep suspicion of anything that's going to tend toward the Gnostic rejection of the body. Uh, uh, you know, which I think is a right one. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm, in, I'm interested in his analysis of sin at the beginning of the story as a peculiar, as, as hinging on these kind of contingencies of embodiedness. Right. Um, right. Which but, honestly is something I've speculated about too. You know, I mean, if we do encounter beings that are non-corporeal, uh, would it make sense to tell them that, you know, they will be given eternal life since energy is by definition non-temporal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, that, that, that's a question that I have posed before in my weird little sci-fi brain. Uh, but like I said, I mean, it was a little bit too tidy and too Gnostic for me to mm-hmm. digest it entirely well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and two, it, 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 it looks an awful lot like wish fulfillment. And I think we've already been given enough, um, enough data in the Martian Chronicles and in the, in some of the later stories we're actually going to look at that. Yeah. That Mars has a kind of Rorschach. Um, you, 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 you get the Mars you, you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there, clearly there is some kind of there, there because he's got stories about Martians before we arrive, but still mm-hmm. Mars seems, Mars seems malleable. Um, and there's in story reasons for thinking that maybe these blue fire creatures are not quite thinking in ways that jive as closely as they seem to with what father Peregrine thinks, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I tend to, I tend to think that blue fire creatures probably have their own sins that they need to uncover. Maybe the sin of pride. (laughs) I mean, just gonna, just gonna toss that one out there. As a possibility. Still, I wish I was made of blue fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never read Fahrenheit 451, Confession Time. But mm. I still think about it when I read the very strange short story here, Usher 2. Nathan, what on mm-hmm. earth does Poe have to do with life on Mars? <laughs> well, among other things, the Martian Chronicles is a story about settlers and among other things, settlers are going to have Puritans. Uh, <laughs> now, in Usher 2, these are a peculiar sort of Puritans. They are opposed to things that are unrealistic. So they approve of literature, uh, but only realistic literature. So one of the characters in one of my favorite lines in the story uh, says that they've seen you know, 36 versions of uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, either on the screen <laughs> or on the stage. <laughs> which <laughs> that, that part that part cracked me up it really did um and so you know this agency uh and i'm i am reaching right now and scrolling furiously for the name of the agency help me out michael oh i don't remember either i'm, I'm oh gosh um but at any rate you know this this you know martian puritan agency uh goes around the and investigator you know, of moral climates there you go <laughs> <laughs> we at moral climates investigates things and you know in a a sort of you know dark sci-fi version of miracle on 34th street uh purges everything that reeks of non-realism so no fairy tales no children's stories uh no edgar Allan poe to be sure uh and you know for this reason our character stendhal uh creates a house that he calls the house of usher which of course is uh you know a direct reference to the fall of the house of Usher, uh, which comes in at the end of the story. I'll get there here directly, but within this story, um, he had, or within this house, pardon me, he has populated it with robotic versions of Edgar Allan Poe stories and fairy tales and all sorts of things that are illegal because, uh, the moral climate people have made it illegal. And so their inspector shows up and he has, his robot ape murder him, which of course is a, an echo of murder at the, the Rue Morgue. Um, and then he hosts this party where he invites all of these Puritans and, you know, kind of invites them into this forbidden pleasure of enjoying non-realistic stories. And they all dress up as fairy tale characters and they are all, 
witnesses to themselves being murdered in Edgar Allan Poe story manners. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and, and also the, the whole setup there is very much like um, Mask of the Red Death. Ah, oh, yes, 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 a costume party. I forgot about that element. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the trick is that, you know, they discover that, you know, when they go to cremate the body of the inspector that they think they've murdered, that, in fact, he is also a robotic facsimile of the inspector. So then the real inspector shows up. And this, Michael, is where I was reading it fast enough that I'm probably going to get some details wrong. <laughs> but the inspector shows up and, you know, Stendhal basically says, oh, yeah, I tried to murder you. Didn't didn't work, though. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> My bad. And so, you know, Stendhal um, says, yes, I, I was going to murder you. And then, you know, hopefully that would delay the destruction of my house by the, you know, uh, moral climate bureau. Um, and so he leads them, he leads, uh, the real Garrett, the inspector into a cellar, uh, where he reveals to him that, you know, all of these people he saw watching their robotic doubles being murdered by Edgar Allan Poe stories, the real people were getting murdered and it was the robotic doubles that were actually watching which by this point in the story, I'm not sure if I believe Stendhal or not, because I don't know what to believe because I was reading too fast. (laughs) And, you know, in true uh, double whammy Edgar Allan Poe fashion, uh, Stendhal proceeds to take Garrett, wall him into a cellar, cask of Amontillado style, and then jump in a helicopter and fly off as the whole house collapses in on itself, fall of the House of Usher style. The great moral, if you want to call it that, that Stendhal speaks here at the end is that you have banned these books, but if you had actually read them carefully, you would have caught my trap a mile ahead of me. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a bizarre twilight zone kind of a story. It's the ironic twist at the end. Uh, it is, you know, to, to throw back to my conversation with Jordan Poss about twilight zone. It's either a Dante and Contrapasso or it is the capricious Ovidian gods just squishing mortals. Uh, either way, it's a weird little story, and it's a whole lot of fun. So, David, what else deserves mention here? One of the, I suppose, uh, one of the defenses, I guess you could say, of uh, the more uh, the more risky, unrealistic, fantastic, or horrific kinds of literature that uh, that this story holds up um Mm -hmm. valorizes is oh well it's just pretend Mm -hmm. it's it's just it's just pretend it's just made up so that um the the initial premise of these people are going to come and watch these murders but don't worry it's just pretend it's just robot versions of them um, mm-hmm. It kind of flips that 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 element of fiction that it's just pretend on its head, and the twist is it's not just pretend. If Stendhal uh, isn't lying, if he's not lying, I assume he's it, not because I think he's a pretty nasty guy. Yeah, but is he nasty enough to tell uh, Garrett this and lie to him and make him think as he's dying that he failed to save these people? <laughs> I think he's I think he's nasty enough to do both, but I think he I think he wants all of them dead. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. Um yeah. No, I I I think it's I I think it's incredibly interesting as you kind of imagine him as this this sort of lifelong defender of the forbidden literature and then what he creates is, you know, what he imagines as a kind of uh, the, the, the vengeance that the literature itself would wreak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think it's because uh, Michael had us read that Tony Morrison story. I'm seeing pervasive ambiguity everywhere now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how yeah. much is there and how much this is. Just Rest of the be, that's the name of it. Yeah. Like a Go simple, ahead. like a simple revenge fantasy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, though, though Poe does this kind of thing, it makes perfect sense. Like, why did he choose Poe and not Lovecraft? Well, because mm-hmm. because Poe is known to have done this kind of thing. Um, in fact, one of the theories about Cask of Amontillado is that the guy that gets stuck, that gets walled up alive, is you know, is a kind of thinly veiled proxy for one of somebody that Poe hated. So, you know, 
it, it's that this kind of literary vengeance is the sort of thing that that Poe was all about. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, the best. I, I th- the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just think it's fun too that apparently Mars now is just nothing but a blank slate for human stories. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the best story in the Martian Chronicles, to my eyes, doesn't take place on Mars at all. It's uh, There Will Come Soft Rains. This story terrified me when I first read it as a child, and I find it only slightly less terrifying as an adult. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to spoil the heck out of it even in the question. David, how does Bradbury tell us that human life has been extinguished on Earth? Well, he does so by giving us a story that has no protagonist. It's all setting. Um, the The story begins um, as so many commercials do these days, apparently, with an alarm clock going off. Um, except there's no one to get up. Um, the house prepares breakfast, but no one eats it, and so forth. the the The, the idea is that there is this this automated house of the future. Mm-hmm. That has continued to operate even though no one's there. Um, and why is there no one here? Well, there's this image, um, oh, about quarter of the way through the story. Uh, you step outside the house, and the outside of the house is um, is burnt, is scorched, except for these these little patches, which are the the silhouettes of 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 humans, um, a man, a woman a boy, a girl, and then a ball hovering in the air between the boy and girl. (laughs) So it's very clear that there was a family here, a kind of, uh, the, the, the kind of 1950s nuclear family that Illa is a parody of. No, uh, no pun intended there, huh? Yeah, 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Except, except a parody of it. Right. Um, uh, and uh, the reversal of of that, um, but that family that family is gone. There's been some kind of a nuclear holocaust. They all died in a flash of of, of you know inferno. But the house continues on, um, and eventually something goes wrong. Um, the house catches fire and then burns and collapses in on itself. So, you know, what we have is, is a world in which, you know, humans had used technology to create um, kind of effortless domestic paradises for themselves. But that ability um, in no way offset that human tendency to push the flashing red button of ultimate destruction. Um so it's it's it was it was it, it, it's the paradise and the hell, both of which the advanced technology offer. Um, it reminds me of um, one of the more recent uh, Fallout games, um, the video game series set in a kind of post-nuclear retro future present kind of thing. Um, but in in one of the recent Fallout games. Um, your character uh, is living in one of these kind of automated ha- house of the future things. And then when the nuclear Holocaust comes, he goes and hides out in a shelter and is frozen and then is unfrozen like decades later. And the house is still standing and their robot is still there maintaining the house. Um, I, it's It's got to be a reference to this story. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, it reminded me a lot. Of of course, of course, it reminded me of old English poetry, um, of things like the Ruin uh, or uh, the old English Wanderer poem, in which um, the wanderer uh, encounters ruins, um, like like the ruins in uh, in and the moon be still as bright. Um, and speculates what kinds of lives must these people who inhabited these ruins had. Um, it, it becomes a kind of elegy for the for the dead civilization. 
Um, and very interesting to kind of compare it to the dead civilization in And the Moon Be Still as Bright. I don't know that Earthlings necessarily come out as idyllic um, in the story based on the ruins they leave behind as the Martians do. Mm-hmm. Nathan, anything to add to that? About the only other thing I'd say is that, you know, the, the haunting thing about the very end of the story is that uh, when the house collapses, there is only one wall left. And just as there is only one architectural feature in isolation, the only thing that the automated house is capable of doing is repeating the date over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, when you pair away the human inhabitants, you get something like the beginning of the story when you even pair away the complexity of the house itself as an ecosystem, it just drifts into this eternal singular repetition that, you know, is in my mind, you know, the most haunting image in the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we, uh, as we head for the door here, what have I left out? Do you see through lines in the six stories we've talked about today? Obviously this is about a third uh, maybe maybe even a fifth of the uh, the overall Martian Chronicles, which neither of you guys have read the whole thing. Is that correct? That's correct. And mm-hmm. I I haven't read it in a long time, so we're not gonna we're not gonna make overall statements about the Martian Chronicles. But what are the through lines do you see in the stories we read? Well, as I kind of mentioned early in the episode, and I, I'm kicking myself for stealing my own thunder now. Uh, one of the really charming things about the selection that we did talk about this episode is the strong contrast between Martians who idealize earth people as sort of these visiting savages and then earth people who kind of idealize Mars as this lost civilization that's far superior to themselves. And then Puritans who idealize realism and, you know, Stendhal who idealizes Poe and at every turn there is some kind of life that people are projecting that has real effects on the lives that people actually experience. Uh, And I mean, the science fiction genre has always been a genre of ideas. I think what this one does so well is to criticize the power of ideas, even as it is holding up ideas as drivers and engines of whatever happens next in history. Hmm. Grubbs, what do you got? As I'm reading the Martian Chronicles, uh, these selections here, I'm ke- I, I keep being reminded of an earlier writer who also wrote about Mars, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, in his Barsoom in his Barsoom books. And the the ways in which Bradbury's Mars are uh, is uh, not like the Mars that would have been available in the pop culture to him. Um, you know, when Bradbury's writing this, it is, you know, the, the, the Mars that is available is the Mars of savagery, the Mars of invasion, um, the Mars of little green men with sinister designs, Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, war of the worlds, or even if a human is visiting Mars in Edgar Rice Burroughs books, it is a savage inhuman place that. Um, the human warrior who who nonetheless possesses some kind of human sympathy, um, he gets to teach the whole world about compassion as even as he conquers it. Um, <laughs> he he is both conquering it and civilizing it in um, in Burroughs' version. Um, even with you know comparisons to Native Americans thrown in for good it for for good measure. Um, I, I, I'm interested in the ways that that Bradbury. Uh, wants to use the alien uh, as a, as a way to look back at humans, um, to uh, to see to see it as a as a as a, a point of critique, so that it's more like um, it's more like Thomas More's Utopia, or or uh, as you said, uh, El Dorado in Candide. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I find that 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 take on Martians to be. Um, an interesting one. I don't know if it's a historically novel one, but certainly it's against the the kind of uh, science fiction mainstream. Um, I think when this comes out, maybe we're used to the idea of aliens being nicer and better than us. 
um, <laughs> in in some de- uh, depictions of science fiction. But I mean, somebody had to have that idea first. Mm-hmm. Thank you, guys. Grubs, what are we doing next week? Well, we are going to be looking at a very, 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 very old Christian text, um, the Didache. Um, I've uh, been kind of mulling over it for um, a while now and would like to have a conversation with someone else who's read it. So that's going to be you guys. Very good. (laughs) Sounds good. Until then, you can get in touch with us. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Uh, the, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. Uh, Till next week, for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>